On June 11, 1994, at 2.40 a.m., a man named Matthias Flink walks out of a military facility dressed in combat gear, carrying an AK-5 automatic rifle. A short while later, seven people are dead. There were warning signs that something was wrong with him in the weeks leading up to this. But could this tragic event really have been prevented? Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for telling a friend about this podcast. If you want to know a little more about me, I did an interview on a blog. So if you head over to booksbulletsandbadomens.wordpress.com, you can find it. I'll also put a link in the show notes, so it's easier for you to find it. Today's episode is about one of the rare mass murders that we have experienced here in Sweden. As I told you in previous episodes, our gun laws are very restricted, and we are not at all used to have mass shootings. At least we were not used to it back in 1994, when this took place. I have to start out by saying that before I started researching this case, I just knew what I read in the papers, and that was something like, a lunatic lost his mind and he gunned down all those people. But after reading and learning so much more about this case, It seems like the gunman was a nice, normal person, up until two months before this all happened. In a way, this scares me even more, thinking it could have been one of my friends or loved ones who suddenly lost it. I'm gonna start out by telling you a little bit about Matthias Flink. Matthias Flink is born on March 8th, 1970, and he grew up with his mother and father in the town of Falun in the middle of Sweden. He didn't have any siblings. His mother was a housewife and his father were a gunsmith. He was working at the large military facility in Falun called I-13. His parents divorced when he was nine years old. The divorce is said to have been undramatic. Matthias stayed after the divorce in the family house with his father, and his mother moved only a few hundred yards away, and they stayed in close contact to begin with. According to psychologists, He was highly affected by his mother's move from the house. When Matthias is about seven years old, he joined the Scout Movement, and he later became involved in FBU, which stands for Försvarets befälsutbildning, 
Well, if you translate it, that, it's something like the army's education for commanding officers. He was also active in shooting as a sport and competed with good results. When turning 18, he had several weapon licenses because he also hunted with his father. He went through military basic training and in 1991 he continued in the military field. And in 1993, after the studies were done, he was appointed a second lieutenant and also started an employment at Dala Regimentet, which is a local regiment in Dalarna for the Swedish Armed Forces. This was in May of 1993, and less than a year after that, in the spring of 1994, he started to experience a declining mental health. The signs were aggressive behavior, threatening other people, intense jealousy, sleeping problems, and paranoia. Matthias contacted a psychologist on Monday, June 6, 1994, and made two more appointments for the coming week. The reason for the mental health issues at this time, Matthias himself thought to be because of his heavy alcohol consumption at the time. And this, in combination with a broken-off relationship, is thought to be the reason why he snapped. I think this looks very much like he maybe was developing schizophrenia. That disease usually shows up between the ages 16 and 30, and Matthias was 24 at this time. A short side note here about schizophrenia. First of all, I want to say that I'm not an expert at this, but I did some research. Schizophrenia means, if you translate it, divided psyche. It stems from the Greek word schizo, which means I divide, and the Greek word phren, that means psyche, mind, or sense. Many people think it is the same thing as Disassociate Personality Disorder, also known as Multiple Personality Disorder, but it's not at all the same thing. These are some of the warning signs of schizophrenia. Mood changes. The person can be angry, moody, aggressive, or not be able to laugh, or laugh all the time. Not be able to cry, or cry all the time. Changes in the senses. The person can become very sensitive for noises or light. Changes in the activity pattern. The person can become very active or very passive. The person can sleep all the time or not at all. Changes in relationship with family. The person is always starting fights. The person might stop calling the family or start calling the family in the middle of the night. Changes in behavior. The person can start to pose in unusual ways. The person can start to engage in extreme religious things. The person can also start using drugs. Change in appearance. The person can start wearing strange outfits or stop caring about 
his or her personal hygiene. There are several more signs coming later in the episode that will tell you that this was probably what was happening to Matthias at this time. If a person in your surroundings starts to exhibit some of these signs, make sure that you get them professional help. And I also want to point out that even if a person gets diagnosed with schizophrenia, that doesn't mean they are violent or that they will commit some terrible crime. Most people who are diagnosed get medication and are living a normal life after that. Well, back to the case. So Matthias was starting to experience different symptoms. Some of his friends also went to talk to his father during the spring of 1994 because they were worried by his behavior. First, we had Anders and Andreas, two of Matthias' closest friends, who later tells the police about an event that took place about a month before the killings. They were hanging out and drinking with Matthias, and the plan was to go downtown later. When they left the apartment at about 10.30pm and started walking towards town, Matthias suddenly started screaming at them. He screamed that he hated them and that he was going to hurt them. They think it's a joke at first, but when Matthias punches Anders right in the face, they realize that he is being serious. He had this crazy look in his eyes, and he keeps hitting and kicking them. Finally, they are able to take control over him by wrestling him down on the ground. He calms down after a little while and starts crying and saying that he's sorry. But every time they let go of him, he starts hitting them again and screaming. Matthias also says at one time during this that he has a gun and that he's going to kill them. Anders and Andreas search him, but they cannot find a gun. This all continues for two hours, and Matthias finally is so exhausted that he falls asleep. The two friends help him get home, and they place the almost passed out Matthias on his bed. And when they leave his apartment, they run like in a zigzag pattern across the lawn outside. This because they were afraid that he might try to shoot them. They talk about reporting this to the police, but decides that it would ruin Matthias' military career and probably get him fired. So they decide not to do anything about it, at least not that night. But the next morning, Matthias calls and asks if something happened last night. He has no memories at all from the night before, but he has bruises. They tell him what had happened, that he had hit and kicked them, screaming terrible things and even spitting Andreas right in the face. That afternoon, Anders and Andreas went over to Matthias's apartment to talk to him. They told him that they got really scared by his behavior last night, 
and that he had to stop drinking. They also told Matthias that he had to contact a psychologist to talk to because his behavior is really disturbing. They say that if one more thing happens, we are going to report you to the police. This was about one month before the shooting. The next report of the disturbing behavior Matthias had that spring is from Eva, his ex-girlfriend. On May 15, Eva contacts Matthias' father Mats, who is over at a female neighbor's house at the time. Eva says that she really needs to talk to him right away, even though it's late. So he agrees to meet her at his house a few minutes later. She comes over at about 11 p.m. and tells Mats that she is worried about Matthias and that he has been acting really strange. She tells Matthias' father that about two weeks earlier, Matthias placed his hand around her neck as if to strangle her, and he also threatened her. This was at her house, and he had been drinking at that occasion too. And she also brings up the incident with Matthias's two friends who had a fight with him for two hours before they could get him to calm down. This, of course, worries Matthias' father a great deal, and he continues to talk to his female neighbor after Eva leaves. The neighbor, Lena, who also is a doctor, tells him that it's nothing to worry about that Matthias is a good boy and that he should probably break it off with Eva because she does seem to have a tendency to overreact and is probably not the one for him anyway. Think about this for a minute. Lena, the neighbor, who is also a doctor, tells him not to worry. She also says that Eva is probably overreacting and that Mats should just let it go. Mats, that is Matthias's father, sorry. Um, I can't keep from thinking if things would have been different if Lena instead had encouraged him to contact the authorities and get help for Matthias. And isn't this a little typical too? Don't blame the man that is acting violent and crazy. Blame the hysteric woman instead. Oh, sorry, I just had to get that out. Now we're going to go into the day leading up to the shootings. This is Friday, June 10th, 1994, and Matthias went to his ex-girlfriend Eva's graduation from nursing school. This was held in church in the central parts of Falun. He brought a large bouquet of red roses, and he was dressed in a handsome military uniform. After he gave Eva the flowers and talked to her for a while, he seemed annoyed that she didn't stay and talk to him some more. But she had many people there who wanted to congratulate her. And after that graduation thing was done, Matthias hangs out with his friend Anders for a while, and then he returns home. Later that night, at about 8 p.m., his friend Anders came over for some drinks before they went out. Matthias says that he had two gin drinks 
and that he wasn't drunk at all when he left to go downtown. They went to a nightclub called Banken, that's located in the central parts of Fallen. They had a beer and stayed there until about 10.30, and then they went to another nightclub called Garbo. You are now going to hear Matthias's friend Anders' version of what happened that night. This is from the police transcripts of the questioning of Anders. When they came to the nightclub Garbo, they met Matthias's ex-girlfriend Eva, who was in there with some of her friends. Matthias and Eva broke up about a week before this. After saying hello to Eva and her friends, Matthias and Eva went to another table to talk alone. Anders don't know what the conversation was about, but Matthias acted normal. He didn't seem upset in any way after the talk. Matthias then went over to talk to Eva again, and Anders went to the restrooms. When Anders came out of the restrooms, Matthias was nowhere to be found. He asked Eva where Matthias was, and was told that he had been thrown out by the guards. Anders stayed for another 15 to 30 minutes, and then he left the nightclub with Eva and her friend Anna. But when they came outside the nightclub, they were immediately approached by Matthias, who still wanted to talk to Eva. Matthias was now behaving aggressively and blaming Eva for causing their breakup. Eva turned around and went into the nightclub Garbo again, and after a few minutes she came out with two colleagues of Matthias. One of the colleagues started talking to Matthias, trying to get him to calm down. Anders then left, and Eva and her friend Anna followed him. They went to a close-by bar and sat down and had a beer. Shortly after they arrived there, at about 30 minutes past midnight, Matthias arrived at that bar and again wanted to talk to Eva. He wanted her to come outside to talk, and she said that she was just going to finish her beer and then come out. So Matthias went outside to wait, but after only a few minutes, Matthias re-enters the bar. He then sees a man sitting really close to Eva and he starts punching the guy like crazy. Several people interfere, and Matthias was thrown out of that bar too. Anders, Eva, and Anna decided that they want to go to the police right away to report Matthias. His behavior was scaring them, and they were afraid that he might do something stupid, if they only knew how right they were. Well, that was Anders' story of that evening. Eva's friend Anna adds a few more things to the story in her statement to police. She says that when they came out from the nightclub, Garbo, and met Matthias outside, she could clearly see a change in his demeanor. Anna works as a nurse in a mental facility, and she describes that Matthias's eyes were changed. And she says she's used to that look in a person who have lost contact with reality. She also describes how Matthias was pointing towards Eva with both his hands while he stated that he was immortal 
that they could stab or shoot him and he still wouldn't die. Eva told him that he was just acting silly and that he wasn't a cartoon character. She kind of made fun of him and started teasing him for how weird he was behaving. Matthias then starts to cry and Anders and Anna try to take them apart and stop the situation. Anna talks to Matthias while Anders talks to Eva. Anna describes how Matthias was now crying really much. He was almost howling. He kept saying, I don't know what's happening. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. And it's now that Eva comes back with Matthias' military colleague and also Matthias' superior in rang. At this point, Anna is hugging Matthias and trying to comfort him. But the superior military guy tells Anna that she should leave and that he's got this now. And he turns to Matthias and says, Flink, what's going on? How are you, man? And then Anna walks after Eva and Anders and leaves Matthias with his military colleague. And after that, the incident at the bar happens and they all end up in the police station to make that statement. Anna describes that they are all a bit drunk at this point and that Eva doesn't make a lot of sense when she's describing everything that had happened to the police. They decide that they should come back the day after to make a complete statement. And then we have Eva's statement to the police. In her statement, we learn a little more about Matthias and about his and Eva's relationship. She starts to describe how they met in the beginning of 1994, only about six months before the shootings. They met through their common friends, Andreas and Anna. Eva describes that she and Matthias were a little different. Eva is spontaneous and Matthias liked to plan everything in detail. She describes that he had a really hard time coping if she tried to change their plans somehow. For example, if they had decided to stay in one night and a friend called and asked if they could do something, Matthias had a really hard time to just tag along and be spontaneous. Everything had to be planned in advance. Matthias was also very possessive of Eva when they went out. He was always close by her side, and he didn't like that she talked to other men. Eva found this really irritating, because she's a very outgoing person, and she likes to talk to everyone. She describes one occasion when she and Matthias were out to dinner with another couple. After the dinner, they continued to a nightclub, where the music was really loud. And at one time, Eva leaned in closer to hear what the other male guy was saying, and Matthias got really upset about this and dragged her outside the club to talk. She also tells the police about that night when he put his hands around her neck. He came over to her apartment with two friends, and they were all drunk. While the friends were in the living room, Matthias and Eva were still in the kitchen, talking. 
and she said something that made him think that she was making fun of him, and then he attacked her. She was sitting on a chair, and he put his hands around her neck and started pressing. She tried to get loose from his grip, and kicked so that a table fell, and then the back of the chair broke in the struggle. So that must have been quite a fight there. Well, those noises made the friends in the other room come and see what was happening, and then Matthias let go of her throat. She didn't pass out, and there were no visible marks afterwards, but she was very sore and very scared. His friends took him home, and Eva called her friend Anna, who came over to spend the night so that she wouldn't have to be alone. They took a short break after that, but then Matthias convinced Eva that it wouldn't happen again, and he also promised her that he wouldn't drink anymore. She also tells the police about how they told him several times to get help and go talk to someone. And he finally did, but only four days before the shooting. And he also had two new appointments to see the same psychologist the week after. On Eva's graduation day, Friday, June 10th, 1994, Matthias came to church in his uniform with a large bouquet of red roses. He then told her that he had been to Stockholm that day on a secret mission for a top military person. And he also said that he had to have a subordinate military person go buy the flowers for her because he couldn't leave his important mission. He had been acting bodyguard to one of the highest ranking officers in the Swedish military and had been picked up and brought back by helicopter, he said. And then he told her that this was top secret and that she couldn't tell anyone about it. The rest of Eva's statement to the police is about the same as the others, so I'm not going to repeat everything to you again. The thing she do describe a little more in detail is when Matthias talks about being invincible and immortal. She describes it like this. He was standing there with his arms pointing towards me and saying, This is my town and nobody can do anything to me. I'm immortal. She then replies that it's her town too and that he's not immortal. He is just a regular human being. The police then ask Eva how Matthias seemed at this point. Was he in a joking mode or was he being serious? Eva says that he was definitely being serious. He really believed that he owned the town and that nobody could harm him. Eva continues to argue with him for a while, trying to get him to understand that he's acting strange but she cannot get through to him. It's at this point that she decides to go back into the nightclub and get Matthias's superior. It's not really clear, but I believe he is Matthias's captain. Eva says to the police that she doesn't care anymore about everyone at his job finding out how weird he's acting. This just has to stop. Thank you.
So now we heard a lot about what happened that day and night. It's now time to get into what happened after Matthias attacked a man talking to Eva in that last bar. First of all, at 1.30 a.m., Matthias's ex-girlfriend Eva, her friend Anna, and Matthias's friend Anders goes to the police station to report Matthias. With them is also a man named Adam. He was a witness from the last bar. And they also call Anna's husband Andreas and ask him to meet them at the police station. You know, Andreas was that guy that had that big fight with uh, Matthias and Anders uh, a month before this. The police officer taking their statement talks to them for almost an hour. They tell him about all the prior incidents with Matthias trying to strangle Eva and about the night that Matthias attacked Anders and Andreas when they were drinking. And they also tell the police officers about all the crazy things that Matthias had been doing that night. The police officers take their statement and they also agree that they should come back the next day to talk some more. Because almost all of them have been drinking that night. While they are talking, they are seated in the reception area. And all of a sudden, another police officer comes running into the room, yelling that somebody is shooting people with an automatic rifle at Stadsparken. If you translate that, it's like City Park. It's a park located close to downtown Falun and placed between the hospital and the military headquarters called I-13. Eva frantically screams out right away. It's him, it's Matthias. The two police officers that were sitting with Eva and her friends at the time when the call came in was police officer Olavi Blomfjord and police officer Bernt Bergström. They come to play a huge role in the capture of Matthias later. The two officers ran to put on bulletproof vests and to get an automatic rifle each. But there was only one rifle left, so one of those two officers had to just bring his Glock. Remember, this is 24 years ago in a small town in Sweden. We rarely had any shootings in Sweden at that time, and Swedish police were actually not armed on duty. They usually had a firearm in a locked box in the police car, but they were only allowed to take it out on a direct order from a higher officer. But in special occasions such as this, all the policemen should be armed. I can also add that since 2012, all patrolling officers are armed due to the increasing terror threats against our country. Well, back to that night. Matthias has now left the bars downtown, gone home to change into military combat clothes. Then he went up to the military facilities, got an AK-5 machine gun, climbed over the fence, and is now heading back downtown. Mm-hmm. 
The first two witnesses are a woman and a man who are walking home from the city and back to the military facilities where they were going to spend the night. This man and woman was from another town and had been part of the last week's training for young women in the military field. A little side note here, in Sweden we have an organization called the Swedish Lotta Organization and they train women in military situations. They also train women in things like leadership, handling crisis and so on. The women who are members of this organization, they are called Lottor. So there had been a week's training camp for Lottor in Falun that past week. And as the week was over, all the Lottor were going out that night to celebrate. And now back to the witnesses. The man and the woman walking home from town were two of the leaders from that camp. And about 50 yards behind them walked six girls that had attended the camp. The man and the woman stopped a few times to make sure that the girls are still behind them and to give them a chance to catch up a bit. When they start to exit the park that they were walking through, they hear shots being fired. They say it's about 15 shots in a quick succession. They turn around and see a man running up towards the hospital. The man is carrying something. They cannot really see the man because the sun is coming up and it creates a backlight. And yes, I know, it's 2.40 a.m. and the sun is coming up. But this is the way it is in Sweden during the summer. Well, back to the story. The man runs up towards the hospital and they look down on the place where the girls were just walking. Five of them are lying down on the ground and one girl is on all four and she's screaming for help. They start walking down towards them, and yes, they are walking, not running. They have not yet realized what has happened. When they get closer, the man says to the girls, Stop the acting, it's not funny. Come on, get up, this is not fun anymore. The woman walks up to the girl standing on all four and asks her, Are you joking? And the girl replies, are you kidding me? And then she looks down towards her stomach. The woman then sees all the blood underneath her. And it then dawns on her that this is for real. The woman then runs to the close by military facility and screams for help when she's coming closer. They call the police and the paramedics from there. Remember, this is in 1994 and there were almost no cell phones. She is taken care of by the military personnel and she is now panicking. She hears another round of shots and are now convinced that her male colleague who was with her has been shot and killed as well. A man walks into the room and he says that ambulances are at the scene now, but there's nothing they can do. They are all dead. But only a few minutes later, her colleague walks into the room. 
He's not wearing a shirt and he has blood all over him. He is alive and he used his shirt to stop the bleeding on one of the girls that was still alive. She is so relieved. The shots that she heard a few minutes before was Matthias continuing his killing further down the street. After shooting the six young women in the park, Matthias continues his walk. And about one and a half to two minutes later, there is a car coming towards him. This is a security guard on his nightly round. Matthias starts firing against the car and the driver, and the man dies immediately. The car continues forward a short bit and ends up in a flower hedge outside a house. Matthias continues to walk, and about 50 yards after he shot the security guard in the car, there is a man on a bike approaching. He is also gunned down. Even though Matthias is under the influence of alcohol, he still manages to hit his targets with all the bullets he fires. After that, Matthias finds a construction crane and climbs up on it. He sits there for about half an hour, waiting for the police. But when nothing happens, he climbs back down again and starts walking towards his home. He later states to the police that the plan was to be killed by the police. He walks on a railroad track, and right after he crosses a small bridge, he sees a blue Volvo further down the street. The Volvo has both the driver door and the passenger door open. In that Volvo is the two police officers, Olavi Blomfjord and Bernd Bergström. You know, the ones who took the statement from Eva and her friends earlier. The two police officers saw him before he saw them and they are now aiming at him behind the open car doors. One of the officers yells out, Freeze! Police! But then Matthias immediately raises his rifle, and both the police officers and Matthias fire at the same time. Officer Olavi describes how he had his aim at Matthias's head, but when he fired, the bullet went into Matthias' hip instead, that instantly made him fall to the ground. The two police officers call for backup and then started moving slowly with their weapons up towards him. They didn't know if he was just playing or if he was dead and his rifle were laying only a foot away from him. But when they came closer, they could see that he was hurt but still alive and they moved the AK-5 away and kept pointing their guns at him until backup arrived. At 3.25, Matthias Flink is brought to the hospital and placed under arrest. One of the nurses who worked that night describes how they just lost one of the girls who were shot earlier, and now they were going to treat the man who caused it all. She said that when she went into the room he was in, she was prepared 
to see a monster. But all she saw was a normal young man who was very scared. The police first questioned Matthias at the hospital at 8.45 a.m. on Saturday, June 11th. That's about six hours after he started shooting. It's a short questioning without a lawyer, but Matthias says in the beginning that he doesn't need a lawyer, so I guess it's by the book. In this questioning, Matthias describes how he went home to change into his military clothes, and then he went up to the military facilities to retrieve his weapons. He says that he jumped over the fence to get out after he had collected the AK-5 automatic rifle and five magazines containing 30 bullets each. He started walking back towards the city center and then he saw the people walking in the park. He says that they didn't see him and that he started firing and they were either hit or threw themselves on the ground. A little side note here from me. They were all shot between two and five times. Every single shot he fired hit its target. After that, he tells the police about how he met that car with a security guard in it, and he fired against the car until it stopped. And then he says that he climbed up into that construction crane, waiting for the police to come and shoot him. And when they didn't, he decided to walk home instead. But then he saw the blue Volvo, and someone yelled something at him, and then he got shot himself. They questioned him several times, of course, but somehow it seems that he remembers most of what happened but not shooting the man on the bike. I wonder why that shooting is blanked out of his mind when he remembers almost everything else. When they question his girlfriend Eva on Tuesday, June 14th, only three and a half days after the shooting, Eva starts asking about where Matthias is now and how he is. The police officers then ask her if she wants to see him, and she says yes. She continues to say, To me, he's not a mass murderer. To me, he's just Matthias, a person that I care about and try to work things out with. Sometimes we just have to stop for a minute and think about all the persons that are affected by a horrible crime like this. I cannot even begin to imagine what it must have been like for Eva in the days after this. After Matthias is out of surgery and starting to recover, he is sent to a mental health facility to be examined. And this is when this case gets kind of confusing. The doctors all come to the conclusion that he was not in his right mind on the night of the shootings. 
and he could not be held responsible for his actions that night. But he is not deemed permanently mentally ill. He was only under a psychosis during that night. This means that if you follow the law here, he cannot be convicted and put in prison because he was under an alcohol-induced psychosis when he committed the crime. And he couldn't be put in a mental institution because he wasn't deemed permanently mentally ill. But of course, you cannot commit a crime like this and walk free, not even in Sweden. So the highest court had to get involved and they sentenced him to life in prison. In 2010, 16 years after the killings, Matthias Flink applied to have his sentence set for a specific amount of years. And after a few turns back and forth, the court decided he should serve 30 years in prison. In Sweden, 30 years in prison means 20 years of served time. Of all the prison sentences handed out, a convicted person always only serves two-thirds of the actual time. The last third is owned and managed by the prison system. This means that if you don't behave in prison, you might serve the last third of your punishment as well. But if you behave, you get out after two-thirds of served time. With this said, Matthias was due to serve 20 years in prison and he was released on June 11, 2014 on the 20-year anniversary of the shooting. To release him on the day 20 years after the shooting has been highly criticized by the victim's family and I agree that that wasn't the smartest thing to do. Matthias changed his name and received a secrecy classification on his person, which means that his name and personal identification number is not searchable anywhere, not even for government officials. This type of secrecy classification is also given to people who are threatened by an ex-spouse or under any kind of threat. The victims that lost their lives that day were first the five young women who were in Falun for military training as Lottor. They are Karin Alkstål, 22 years old, Therese Danielsson, 20 years old, Helle Jörgensen, 21 years old. Lena Mordner Nilsson, 29 years old. And Jenny Österman, 22 years old. And the two men who got killed is the security guard Mats Bragstedt, 35, 
and the young man on his bike was Johan Tolsten, 26. My heart goes out to their families. That was the case about the first big mass shooting in Sweden. Kind of the day we lost our innocence. But unfortunately, there was going to be another mass shooting that same year. But this time in Stockholm. I will cover that case in another episode. And before I end this, I want to tell you about my personal connection to this case. On that Friday, June 10th, 1994, I graduated from high school about half an hour north of Falun in the small town of Rättvik. Of course, we went out partying like crazy that night. And as it was, I had my own apartment on top of my parents' gas station slash convenience store. So I could get home whenever I wanted. I didn't have a curfew. I was 19 years old after all. And I did get home at about 7 a.m. the next morning. So I of course slept all day and had no idea what had happened in Falun that night. But my poor mother woke up that morning to the news that five young women were killed in Falun. And of course, their identities were not released yet. My mother knew I had a lot of friends in Falun and that I went there sometimes to go out. So my mom started calling me and calling me and calling me. And I was just sleeping it off, not hearing anything. And when I finally woke up at about 3 p.m., she was both angry and relieved that I wasn't one of those girls. And now, being a teenage mom myself, I have to apologize to my mother for the panic I put her through on that day. Förlåt, mamma. And if you wonder, that means sorry, mom. I know she listens to this. Now some short information stuff before we get into today's Swedish fun fact. First of all, a big thank you to my newest and very generous Patreon, Jilly. Your contribution helped a bit with the production costs. Thank you so very much. Check out the new levels on patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. And to help the show for free, I would really appreciate if you would rate and review the show on iTunes. Thank you. You can find all my contact information in the show notes. After the episode, you are going to hear a little clip from one of my podcast friends. This time, it's Lainey from True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I can highly recommend her podcast. She does a really great job. And after that, there's also a clip from Emily and Kat, who does the Do in Crime podcast. So don't miss that. Stay tuned. And now to this week's little fun fact about Sweden. The Swedish monarchy is one of the oldest in the world. It dates back a thousand years and has included 11 dynasties, 
with uh, the current one, the house of Bernadotte, ruling the longest. Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte was the first of his line on the Swedish throne. He was born in France in 1763 and was named heir to the throne in 1810. He changed his name to Karl XIV Johan. The Swedish royal family is related to all the reigning royal courts of Europe. Our king, Karl XVI Gustav, and his wife, Queen Sylvia, have three children, Victoria, Carl Philip and Madeleine. Victoria married her personal trainer, a man from a small town named Daniel. He is now called Prince Daniel. Carl Philip married a young girl from the same area that Fallen is located in. She was in a reality show called Paradise Hotel when she was younger, and she's now titled Princess Sophia. And she's great. I like her a lot. And the youngest princess, Madeline. She married a man named Christopher O'Neill. He was born in London, but now lives in New York. And I think he's a citizen of both England and uh, America. His official title is Mr. Christopher O'Neill. The reason he didn't become a prince is because he, you have to be a Swedish citizen to become a prince. And when you become a prince, you cannot own a business. So he decided to keep his business and skip the prince title. I think it's very refreshing that the royal children are allowed to marry whomever they choose. This was definitely not the case before. I'm proud of our royal family. They represent Sweden in a very good way. And let's face it, it's not like they have any power over anything anymore. So now you know a little bit about the Swedish royal family. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye! Hej då! Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. That's Kat over there. And I'm here with the Boo Radley of the podcasting world, Amelie. We're Doing Crime, a podcast that delivers specific true crime cases. Along with bi-weekly palate cleanser episodes, which include broad themes that range from public masturbation to different forms of capital punishment. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for doing time with Doing Crime. Tip your bartender. Bye. Bye.